we should expect to go through our life feeling pretty good. And if we do end up in an experience that's negative, we should expect that we can get through it Mm. and get back to how we were. And that's what gets me excited now as an aging specialist is looking at that. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back. Today on the show, we are talking about what we can expect as we age. Joining us to share her expertise is Deborah Heiser, PhD in Applied Developmental Psychology. She specializes in midlife and aging. She's the founder and CEO of The Mentor Project, which she recently launched in her early 50s. She's a TEDx speaker, blogger for Psychology Today, and award-winning researcher and adjunct professor. Like I said, we will be talking about what we can expect as we age. And as you know, most of what we see in the media and we read and images that are shared is the the downside of aging, the negative sides of aging. And what I love about Debbie and her perspective and her work is that it centers around the positives of aging. This is definitely a deep dive conversation on all things what to expect as you age, including our opinions on plastic surgery and the importance of giving back. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Here we go. Hello. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for being here today. Hi, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you, Michelle. Oh, I'm really interested in talking to you. I've never interviewed an aging specialist. I honestly, I don't even know if I'm familiar with that term, you know, what people do. So I'm going to ask you to get into that. But I wanted to say that I saw your TEDx talk and it made me laugh because you said that when people learn that you're an aging specialist, they think you're going to be boring, don't want to talk to you at parties. And I was like, I would probably want to talk, like, I would want to know more about you and what you do. To me, that's fascinating. I can't imagine anyone would think what you do is boring. So why don't you tell us what an aging specialist does? And we'll go from there. Sure. Um, Well, I'm glad to hear that, first of all, that you would be excited to learn more about it. uh, Because saying that I'm an aging specialist generally is a conversation killer at cocktail parties. But um, it, it what an aging specialist does is it's a person who re- I, I, I research the lifespan and study the lifespan. And I look at what we should expect as we age. So most people think of an aging specialist as someone who's looking at all the negative things that we might have that um, people think of like <clears throat> frailty or um, depression or illness. And yes, I did research all of those um, when I first started out in my career, but I look at the positives now. And those are things like our emotional growth, our expectations on where we should be. And um, in, in all honesty, we 
although we can all expect our physical development to decline, that starts to happen at 15, where we don't video game even at 20 as quickly as we did at 15. If you see gymnasts and other people who are in sports, they peak very young. Our, um, although people can go into sports much uh, for a much longer amount of time, we really do start to decline physically pretty early in a lot we, of, um, we've got yeah. in a lot of what areas I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I didn't at 15. Yeah. So, you know, our reflexes with video games and yeah. things like that, we're really, it can be as early as 15 that those start to um, decline a little. These are things we don't notice. Sure. I mean, these are things that, um, we can also develop skills though, um, to help us master these things and continue to, um, do very well with them because we've mastered coping skills for things. However, if I at, you know, 52, almost 53 were to go and have a race with a 20 year old, I'm not going to win. (laughs) Um, but people who are aging don't care about that necessarily. Our desires and our, uh, we're not as focused on our physical abilities. And that is why when we research aging, we know that people are happier as they get older. So people in my age range, in my 50s, we tend to be happier than 20-year-olds. Um, so that's a good thing. So we have an, a physical expectation that we have an early peak, and then we have a steady decline. And most people think, oh, my goodness, I don't have anything to look forward to as I get older because it's just decline. However, we have a very steady incline with our emotions that never decreases. It never goes down. So um, we can just expect a nice ride uphill for a lifespan. And that is what I focus on, is making sure that people are on that wonderful upward um, emotional trajectory in their midlife and beyond years. So it's so interesting, but how, what does it mean that we're on an incline emotionally? Does it mean that we have more capacity for emotion, a greater range of emotion, more understanding. Could you just elaborate on what that means? Sure. So um, as we get older, we have better coping skills. We also have, you know, we go through a lot from the, if, if anyone's seen a two-year-old and they want something, what do they do? They, they throw themselves on the floor, cling, yes, cling to your leg as you're walking by to see if they can um, you know, just sort of hang on until they think they can get it. We don't do that anymore as adults. Um, and that's because we learn skills that help us to um, manage frustration. We have skills that help us to manage expectations. We also know how to get along with others. So by the time we hit midlife, we're at a point where we've shed a lot of our superficial friends and we sort of stick with only the people who mean something to us. We don't have the time for hanging out with people who are, you know, sort of time suckers. Um, And so we end up having deeper, richer, more meaningful experiences with those that we um, choose to be around. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that really helps us is um, learning how to navigate, pick and choose who we like to be around, who we find to be meaningful, who we think, you know, that person's going to help me out if something um, happens to me. Um, That's a person I'm going to call in the middle of the night. Um, Those are things that give us intense comfort and guard us and help us from feeling lonely and from feeling um, negative thoughts. So 
that's where I mean by that, um, mm-hmm. that we have that ability. Most people who are 50 and older can say, oh, I know what you're talking about. Totally. You're there. Yeah. I'm turning 50 in a couple of weeks. So I'm totally with you on, on everything you just said. Uh, and it's helpful to understand it better. Let me ask, so how did you get into being an aging specialist? Can you just take us back a little bit in your career? How did you create this focus for your work? I mean, it started because I had a grandmother who I was very close with, who uh, was in an assisted living facility when I was, you know, young and uh, she was depressed, but no one understood what it was. Mm. So she was in the facility and we kept bringing her books. We brought her everything that was her favorite thing. And she was saying, I don't want it. Nothing made her happy. And a psychologist was there and she said, don't worry, we're going to fix your grandma. And then I said, wow, all right. And no one believed her, but they did. Um, And it wasn't that, you know, she fixed grandma, but grandma recovered from depression. And I said, I want to work with older adults Mm. after that. So after, you know, school, I went on to graduate school. I worked in, um, you know, while Cornell in a psychiatric hospital on the geriatric, in the geriatric division. And I said, I think that I want to research aging. And then I worked in a uh, nursing home for many years, researching um, de- uh, uh, depression, um, Alzheimer's disease, frailty, all the things that one would expect. Um, and then when someone asked me at a conference early on, why do you study aging? What, what's the, what's the purpose? And the person, I said, well, you know, to help people to recover from their illnesses and their frailties and give them longer life. And the, the person said, um, and the person is Dan McAdams actually, who studies generativity, which is um, caring for others without expecting anything in return. Mm. Um, and he said, big deal. Um, so what, what we all want to just look forward to having someone help us through these horrible times that we have to look forward to. And I was floored. I felt actually like not an aha moment. I had an internal sort of crisis where I said, well, why am I doing this if it's not doing any good? And then I started to look at the other side of it. What do we have to expect? And looking at the people that I was working with and saying, well, most of the people that are here are actually happy. Now let me take a look at what's going on. And that's what flipped the switch for me to move to looking at um, normal development and what can we can actually expect, you know, having been in a, a psychiatric hospital and then in a nursing home, you start to look, you look at your population as what to expect. And I needed to look outside of that to be able to see, in fact, um, we have a lot to look forward to, a long, healthy, happy life. I love hearing that because you don't hear that in the media. You don't hear that often. You just hear, you know, all the all the decline that the, you were talking about, the up and down and the physical, but not this upward trajectory, which is great. Um, I'm curious, though, do you have clients? You said you left that hospital setting. How, how did you get gather your data and start researching? Well, it was, I ran um, a research department there. So, you know, we had, it was a 705 bed facility. There were plenty of, we also went into the community. 
Um, so we did things in people's homes, in the community settings. It was really quite a robust um, research department. Um, and so, but we were looking at um, pathology and I now look not at pathology, but the things that we should expect normal, you know, the normal trajectory, which is um, most of us, it's actually a much higher number to expect a normal trajectory. Um, we, I remember when it was first, um, when we were first looking at um, Alzheimer's disease, everyone was afraid that they were going to, and they didn't know there was a crisis of, oh, I want to get my blood tested to see if I have the gene that would mm-hmm. make me the uh, APO, susceptible. APO, APO, or whatever. Yeah. If, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things that really, you know, it's not, these are not things that we should expect. We should expect um, to go through our life um, feeling pretty good. And if we do end up um, in an experience that's negative, we should expect that we can get through it Mm. and get back to how we were. And that's what I gets me excited now as an aging specialist is looking at that and working with clients on that. I'm able to actually see people if they get into a little funk, you know, as I I, like it, as we all do, anyone can at any point in their life that it isn't a permanent, you're not there in a permanent place. You can come out and be happy, you know, right back where you were. Like they did with your grandma. Exactly. I love that. I love that. So what can we expect as we get older? We can expect to have deeper relationships um, and and things that give us that those butterflies in our stomach. Um, so the feeling that you get when you see people have children and they see their children having an experience and you're able to step back and see them, mm. you know, have joy. We're able to feel that a lot more with our other relationships. Um, we're able to, we can expect to want to give back to others without expecting anything in return. This is something we're built to do, do just like walking and talking. And mo- most people say, well, I don't understand how that would make us feel happier or what that would do for us. But part mm. of what that does is it's our way of leaving our legacy without us thinking about it. It's leaving a sense of immortality for us. Mm. So as we give back a little bit of our expertise, whether that's, you know, I mean, that's how religion got passed on for centuries was someone was passing that along. These are things that aren't short lasting, um, but whether it's, you know, a grandma's recipes or values, or it's, um, tech expert, um, expertise, software, you know, expertise, coding, whatever it is that launches us into a new era. Those are the sorts of things that once you pass it on, it's out in the world outside of ourselves. And it's a form of immortality. And we naturally do this. We're built we to say, we absolutely naturally do this. So, um, people didn't have a word for it. And then they name, you know, the, the real, academic word for it is generativity. And that's yeah. just not a word fix up um, momentum, you know, that doesn't roll off the tongue really well. Um, but it was coined as a, uh, an emotional development stage by um, Eric Erickson. And it's been studied extensively. And basically what this is, is it's a midlife stage where we're giving back, preparing to leave our legacy. We're saying, 
what's that footprint footprint I want to leave? I've been checking all the boxes all along. Okay. I did all the things I was supposed to do. Check, 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 career check, you know, family life check, friends check, which is, you know, what we are supposed to do when we're younger, but we we get tired of checking the boxes at midlife and we want to say, now what? And that's the point that people say, okay, I'm open now. What do I do? And that's where like you're doing a podcast, you're taking your expertise and you're putting it out there for the whole world to hear. These are the sorts of um, generative activities that people do all the time, but they don't acknowledge it. When you don't acknowledge it, you can't really get the, the good feelings from it. So learning to acknowledge these and learning to look for more opportunities, that's what makes us feel even happier. And it gives us that um, really good pit of the stomach, glowing feeling that people will often report to me that they feel. I love this. I love it. And I, I've, I've never heard that word generativity either. So this is great. I think it'll be some information and, and a different way of thinking about aging that maybe I'd say most of us haven't because really what we do see in the media and what we read and everything is all about how we're declining every day <laughs> versus the good and the and the ability, like you said, to overcome if there are these setbacks, because life happens, right? So there are going to be things that come up. What I'm curious about, especially based on what you do, I was thinking about this as I'm turning 50. I, I couldn't help but remember that SNL skit with Sally O'Malley, where she would say, so for those of you who don't know this skit, it's pretty iconic. I think most people do, but I'll just say it's this woman who looks and talks older than she is. She wears her jeans or pants up almost to her breast. They're like, she keeps pulling them up, you know, like she's like an old woman and her got saggy pants. And, and when I say old, we'll have to get into how that's thought of in this country. But anyway, she goes, um, <laughs> I like to kick and stretch and kick because I'm 50. And, you know, it's this like really silly skit. And I remember when I watched it, I was probably, I don't know, 30 or so. I don't know. So you have this image of 50 is somehow being this really maybe old person without really thinking about it, but that's really what it was doing. It was kind of reinforcing this idea that 50 is old. And as somebody who's 50, uh, I can tell you, I don't wear pants that come up to my breath <laughs> and uh, feel the need to uh, kick and stretch and kick, although that's not a bad thing. I'm just curious your perception. And the other thing I was thinking about too, is this I remember when I turned 40, all this, a lot of the celebrities, Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox, and all of a sudden it was 40 is the new 20. And I thought, why can't 40 be 40? Why does it have to be 20? I mean, yes, people look good, but maybe it's just to say, hey, at 40, you don't really look as old as you think. I mean, maybe it had that, but it was almost to me like a denial of a natural process of life. Everything ages. Our plants are aging, animals age, trees are aging, right? So we age. I just would love your thoughts. Just let's just dive into this. Sally O'Malley in the forties and twenties. Sure. Yeah. You know, I lived the Sally O'Malley. Like that is the, <laughs> that is what I was fighting against for decades because I remember I, it's so true. I remember I was teaching a class while I was in graduate school and I was think I was like 32 mm -hmm. and I gave an assignment to the class. It was an aging class. And I said, so what is old? Give me a number. And like half of them said 30. What? And I, I know. How old were I, they? I, Which I, this was college age? 
They were all undergrads. So undergrads. they were, okay. you know, yeah. like 18, 19, 20. Yep. And I thought, oh boy, you have, you have a long road ahead of you. <laughs> if you think that's old. Um, and then I re- we were doing a study um, for a company and we did a Google search under old man. The, the Google search, this was in the early 2000s. Yeah. And so the search was old man. And the only image that came up was Santa Claus. Oh. And then like there just were no images. And that to me was a red flag because like there's nothing about old people at all other than Santa. Like no one could put you anything know. out. No, granted. <laughs> I know. So then a while later, um, about 10 years later, um, I looked again around 2010 and it was all frailty and, you know, how older people were victims and, you know, wheelchairs, walkers, um, you know, sad looking faces. And I remember telling even the Atlantic and other organizations, you've got to change that. The image has to be changed because I should not do a Google search. And, you know, these are, there were all sorts of aging experts who are in academia who are just looking at, um, you know, the work they were doing, but the media had an impression and it was, it was no one's fault because the academia was holding all the information. Yeah. So there was nothing positive put out there about what to expect. So now though, if you Google old man, you don't see that. So another 10 years now, here we are, you can Google it and it's happy looking individuals, active looking individuals. It's not negative. So we are changing in where we are with regard to aging from back when I first started um, where there was a lot of fear and anxiety and trepidation. So why wouldn't you want to try to look younger because you're afraid of what is in front of you. You want to sort of hold on to your youth as much as possible. Um, but now we're seeing people who are in their sixties and seventies um, and even eighties who are becoming icons for being normal, normally aging individuals. Um and that is refreshing. We're seeing, I just wrote a piece because look at our two candidates for president. How old, you know, know. Biden is going to be 80 when yeah. he's president. Yeah. Who would have thought that 20 yeah, years ago? True. It wouldn't have happened. Look at all of the politicians that are in place. They're older. Yeah. And Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mitch yeah. McConnell. Like it doesn't matter which side you're on. Yeah everybody's represented represented as age. And that didn't come up as as something that people said, I'm not going to vote for that person because um, they're older. I I heard people saying, I'm not going to vote for a woman, but they didn't say, I'm not going to vote for someone who's older. And that to me was the real change with aging. We're at the top of the wave right now. And I think that we're going to be making a turn where aging is going to be more accepted and it's We're going to be valuing expertise into the later decades, um, much more than we ever did in the past. So I have full optimism for the future. Well, I think we're both optimistic people. I mean, and I love that you're, like I said, yours is on a very positive slant around aging versus some of the other ways that we're hearing about it. But the women who listen to the show, it's downloaded in over 80 countries. So here in the United States, the trend has been what we've talked about, though, is just, you know, you think of older people, retirement homes, getting sick, 
other cultures revere their elderly. They're looked to, you talked about giving it back. We'll get into your mentor program that you started here. Um, but that was just a natural part of the culture. Why do you think it's different here in the United States? I, you know, I think that it's different because it, we have a very independent focused culture that, you know, are, we're supposed to raise our kids to be independent and then they're supposed to go out and remain independent. Where are you going to go? Oh, it's across the country. Great. That's not a bad thing. We aren't doing a bad job with that. Um, But one thing we're not tying it back to is saying, okay, are you, where are you going to loop back to me later on, you know, as a parent? Um, And that's the one discussion that we've left out. You know, we are very good at launching our kids and we're very good at maintaining long distant relationships but that's what's hard about it because when you have the distance, it it's not an out of sight, out of mind, but there's a disconnect there at some level that they don't have in other countries where you say, live very close to your family. Um, my mother-in-law who lives with us actually um, is from Europe and she said everyone lived within the same block of each other yeah. and that doesn't happen here. Yeah. Um, So that, I don't see it as a negative with the U.S. I see it as a positive for other countries, but I see it as a place where we are probably heading toward doing more of here. Yeah. So you think it's part of the cultural ecosystem. So in other countries, the reason that they're valued and revered is oftentimes they are on the same block. They're in the same home. They're the great grandparent is still around with the kids and the grandparents and everyone's together. And so those people are part of their, and that was my upbringing to be, you know, not my grandmother wasn't living with us, but she lived five minutes away. And I saw her numerous times a week and um, yeah, it's interesting, but I do still think that we have a desire for youth in this country. And I don't think we're unique there. I know there's other countries. I remember traveling to Argentina when I was about 28 and you could get plastic plastic surgery for anything. They'd have it literally on the windows as you walk by and there was payment plans for everything. And I remember sitting next to a professor who was from Argentina, a woman on the airplane. I've traveled to meet my brother down there. He was at MIT and meeting up with some friends. So I, I joined them. Super fun. He was in grad school. And, um, so I flew down to meet him and then flew back by myself. And this woman was a professor from, from Argentina. And I said, you know, tell me a little bit more about this. She goes, the young girls, even, you know, at the age of like 30 or they're, they're getting their knees done. They're doing their, (laughs) I mean, the knee. And I was like the knees. I, I mean, now that I'm 50, I get the knees. I didn't get it when you're that young. I can't even imagine, but this desire for youth. And we had talked before the mics went on about, and I think we're both in favor of women doing what feels good for their body. So if they want to do Botox or plastic surgery, it's your body. You feel good. Go do what you want to do, assuming you can afford it and you feel whole without it. That's my feeling. You can speak to what you think. But as a spa- aging specialist, I just would love your input on what you're seeing because billions of dollars are spent every year on plastic surgery and altering to be youthful, to look youthful. You know, I... I don't know how other people feel who are in the field, but I'll be quite honest with you. I'm a chicken. I probably would have tried some things, but I'm so afraid that I didn't. I don't see anything wrong with people doing things. I get haircuts. 
I, you know, put highlights in my hair. I don't see anything wrong with trying to look better. Right. But I also think that, um, there's a, we have to be mindful about what we're doing. I'm not trying, for example, and a lot of people aren't when they go to get haircuts or get their nails done or do whatever they're doing to change themselves as a person. But if a person wants to go and get some kind of a surgery, I'm not against that. It's if you're doing it out of fear of someone not liking you or not being attractive to others and feeling like you're going to be discarded. It's that, that I'm, I'm against. Um, I think that, and people can be okay with themselves and go get surgery. So I'm not against it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I just wonder in terms of the psyche of younger women who are in their twenties, who are trying to avoid the wrinkles or not smile because the Kardashians don't smile so that they don't have, I just, I don't know that that's the role model or my idea of how I would love younger women, especially as the mom of a girl in terms of how to perceive aging. That's my thing around it. It's not, yeah. I'm going to say that's not aging. That's image. Oh, good. I like this. This is good. So I think those are the two things that need to be teased out. One is your image. And that's the thing where you're going to carry it through your whole life and be insecure about how you really look. I need to do this, that, and the other thing um, because I won't be accepted or I won't be as beautiful or seen. Someone will see me in a, in a less positive way. That's image. Um, and if it's starting at 20, that's not aging. That is, I need to look like a Kardashian or I want to look like a certain person. I remember in the nineties, the big deal was to get giant breast augmentation and a small waist. So you had the Jessica rabbit look, um, you know, then it changed, but these are the things that we have been seeing through time and the, and every decade or so the, um, the looks change. There's going to be a new Kardashian look soon enough. Um, that wasn't the look in the eighties. That wasn't the look in the nineties, but that was the look for the two thousands. Um, and I think that the biggest thing to do is to say, how am I making sure that image is being addressed? Um, you know, what's, what's your own brand? What's your own image? What do you want to portray to others? Um, as opposed, I, I definitely separate that from age. I love what you just said. I think that's hugely important, really important distinction you just made. I think that's true. And I guess I've never really thought about it. I've not thought about it because I always worry about younger women and having self-confidence and being who they want to be in the world. If this is what the show's about at any age, having that, but to feel like you need to, uh, look a certain way to appeal to other people. You're right. That's image. That isn't aging. That isn't aging. And women who are age or above or below who want to do stuff because it makes them feel happier. Great. Great. And, and, you know, when you talked about people thinking that you look younger or older, I think that the image that you talked about with Sally uh, from SNL, yeah. um, the image of a 50 year old is one that's pretty haggard, you know, that looks like you've, you know, lived a full life. And so when people look at you, when people look at people who are 50 or, you know, in their fifties or turning 50 and they see someone that doesn't meet their image, you appear younger, um, which is kind of nice. And that can be with wrinkles that can be with, you know, uh, um, whatever 
line it is, but if you're not wearing the saggy pants and, um, you know, a sweater vest or whatever, you know, it is that the mom jeans and the big clunky sneakers, then you're going to, um, be seen as, um, as more just relevant. Yeah. Yeah. This is really good. This is really good. Well, let's talk a little bit about confidence with aging. Cause you talked about, you know, when we hit 50 and above, um, what we see is that you're just less tolerant of relationships that don't feed you or serve in a a higher meaning way. There's no drama or you have less tolerance for that kind of drama. You want more meaning and connection and giving back and all of that stuff. Where do you see confidence? Um, the ability to also then fulfill desires, dreams as a part of all of this, where does that fit in? I think that once you hit 50, you have the, it's an opportunity, more people who are in the 50 and older age range, go out and become entrepreneurs than like any other age range. It's really because you can, and you have the confidence when I was 20, I wouldn't have even known what to do. You know, I know that there are 20 year olds who go and do that, but I'm not alone in, in having developed enough skills over time to say, Hey, I can start something new. I know I can do it. I have the confidence because I've failed and I've succeeded at things. And, and people say, I'm going to have the confidence to pivot and do something brand new. It's really because we have all gained um, a whole set of skills and a whole set of knowledge. And we're able to take those desires that we might've had when we were younger and put them to the test when we're middle age. Um, And we have the confidence because we've already lived through the failures and the successes. So every time you fail, um, it isn't like that. We're not like a rat that goes into a box and you keep going down the same wrong trail. We learn from that and it doesn't feel good at the time, but by the time you're 50, you've had enough of those that you say, Oh, Hey, I can, I know I can do this. I tried in several times in the past and it either worked out, but not to the full level or, I got close and then decided to have kids or I, you know, whatever it is. Um, by the time we hit midlife, we have that confidence because of that. Um, most people don't think of failure as a confidence booster, but it's one of our biggest confidence boosters later because we see it didn't do anything terrible to us. Right. We didn't crumble. And we learned from made us stronger in some way, whether or not we wanted that lesson or not. It it, yes. it ultimately makes you stronger because you have to go deeper in within yourself and heal the wounds or find the information or the support systems to to continue. Well, let me ask you. We had also talked uh, when we first connected about an informal set of stages that people meet to thrive as they age. Because I was talking to you about how sometimes I ask my guests, what would your eighty five year old self tell you about living a good life? And you're like, oh, that's kind of one of these boxes or check marks that you have kind of informally put together. Um, can you talk about some of the key ones that makes, make the most impact? Sure. Like we have stages that we should expect. And one of them is, um, that we should have the desire to give back. And I'm, I'm going to call this the Ebenezer effect for this part of the lifespan. So the things that we should informally expect are to, um, feel like we have connections that we're close to that you can call somebody and that person is going to take your call at two in the morning. 
that you have somebody who, if you tell them an idea that you have, you trust them enough that they're going to, that they aren't going to laugh at you or say what a terrible idea or that they won't steal it and run away with it. That you have now, even if it's one or two people, that's all you need, that you have that, that you have a desire to share your knowledge or your expertise or something that you've developed over time with others. And another thing that we should expect is that we want to um, have the feeling that our, that we can internalize our wisdom, that we're able to acknowledge that we have these skills. A lot of people have a ton of skills. They've checked all the boxes, but that's all it was to them. It's internalizing it. And it's saying, you know what? I'm a good, I'm a good person. And even if I made mistakes here and there in the past, I really feel like, hey, I I got a lot I got a lot of skills over time. I ha- I have close relationships. I made a mark in the world. I have people who love me and who care for me and I put stuff out into the world and I like where it landed. And this doesn't have to be profound in a way and I try to talk to, you know, teenagers about it sometimes. It doesn't have to be that you have to be a rap star or something like that when you're older. It means that you made one even one life different just by having a big connection with them. Mm. So it's these little tiny things that we all take for granted that no one really talks about that are super, super, super meaningful to us and that change our lives and really do make us reflect. And when I said the Ebenezer effect, if you go back to Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, and you look at Ebenezer Scrooge, um, he's a guy who checked all his boxes Um, And he was not a happy guy. He was a self-made, very wealthy man who lived in a mansion and had servants who helped him. And he had no connections with others. Um, He was ultra focused on just himself and uh, the external needs and things like that. Um, And superficiality. It wasn't until he um, made the connections with his nephew and Tiny Tim and Bob Cratchit that he immediately had joy in his life. And we saw in the movie, and it's exactly how it is, this is exactly how it is in real life, is that there's that joy. Like he was just so happy. And that's exactly what it is. He was able to acknowledge that this was what he needed. um, And then he was able to give back. So whatever your skill is, you know, for example, my mother-in-law who lives with us, her skill isn't passing down what it was like when she was living and the skills that she learned that are very different than nowadays and her recipes and her values and her religion and all of these things. These are solid in my kids and that she lives now through them. Now they carry Mm -hmm. her on. Um, And those are the sorts of things that um, if we are able to just give the acknowledgement to ourselves, we'll seek it out more. So once you start to get it, it's like candy and you want more and more and you seek it out more and then you just get more and more joy. And I also think fulfillment, I think what you just said is really beautiful and important because I know that self-confidence isn't necessarily about, I mean, it can come with aging, but I know a lot of women who had corporate careers or had other parts of their lives that filled them up before, let's say they became a parent or whatever, and they're trying to rediscover and re-embrace themselves. So they're doubting their values. So I really love what you just talked about, because if they could just acknowledge 
all of those skill sets that come easy to them or just being a good friend or whatever it is uh, and own that energetically, that alone, and then paying it forward, which is kind of where you're at now. So can you talk about the mentor project and what prompted you to start this? Absolutely. Um, I just wanted to touch on what you said, because I also did this. I made a pivot in midlife. And we have so many skills. It doesn't matter how different your new career is that you're looking at or your new pivot is. You have skills, whether it's being able to organize something, put out fires, whatever it is that translates into your new pivot. And people are afraid. They, they don't know that that's what happens, but it does. Um, and that ties into a little bit the mentor project. The mentor project is based on um, generativity and the desire to give back for people who are in midlife. When I was writing, getting, writing a book and I was interviewing people who give back to others, um, I saw a theme and that was that people had a desire to give back, but they didn't know where or how. So we founded the mentor project as a place for people to give back for free, you know, to other to kids around the world. And people really laughed at it. It was before the word mentor was really out there in a meaningful way. And people were like, oh, what, you know, when I was in the eighties and working, people didn't use the word mentor. No one said, go get a mentor. Um, so it's now become a word that everybody knows. They hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. But people said, you're never going to find people who want to give back to kids. Like, who's going to want to give up their time? (laughs) But um, we have a waiting list. We have more than 70 mentors now in less than a year um, that want to give back and that do give back. And it's beautiful to see the testimonials from the mentors are that they feel like um, it's one of the most important things they've ever done because they're able to give back of themselves. They see their passion light up in somebody else's eyes and then they get to see where that goes. Um, and that's, I never did expect quite the, um, quite the response, but we are still having people writing and calling and saying, I want to mentor. How can I get involved? How can I do this much more so than people saying I need a mentor? Um, we have, I mean, we have plenty of opportunities. Um, but we have some mentors who give back one-to-one some who give back um, uh, in groups, in hackathons, in Ask Me Anythings. Um, We have a big connection with Argentina, um, kids in Argentina and the U.S. So we pair up kids blindly and they get to meet kids they've never met. And then the mentors come in and help them to, um, you know, solve big problems that we have in the world. And one of those is um, working toward a patent Um, another, so based on that project with kids that didn't know each other coming together to over one weekend. Yeah, it's just neat. It's all everyone's passion, um, being paid forward to, um, a a kid of various ages around the world. Well, can you just explain, because, so we, I know this because I researched you before you came (laughs) on the show and we had a conversation, but you talked about, you made a pivot a year ago and launched this. So just go a little bit deeper. So people understand that you took your, whatever work you were already doing and somehow this light bulb went off. So take us into this, just how this unfolded for you. So I was talking with, um, a guy named Bob and he, Bob cousins, he's the guy who patented how we use credit cards on the internet. 
So basically he changed our world in that way. I mean, every time you shop on Amazon, thank Bob, but um, (laughs) then Bill, he said, you got to meet my friend, Bill. He's the guy who um, he's got a million different patents, but one of them was um, he was one of the many founders of the firewall or the person who invented the firewall. So how you're able to do everything securely is because of that work. And he, he was at Bell Labs and he did a ton of other stuff. And I was talking to Bill and he said, you know, I really want to teach quantum mechanics to fourth graders. And he said, I just will look like a weirdo if I go out on the streets or knock on a school door and say, hey, can I teach kids? And I said, yeah, you'd look pretty creepy. Um, so he said, I'd love to do that, but I don't know how to do it. And then I called him about a year later. So this was, you know, um, a couple of years ago. And I said, let's do it. Let's go. That idea that you had, let's make it roll. I think we can do it. And within uh, no time at all, the year before, right before the pandemic hit, Bill was driving two and a half hours to go into schools. They had named him Ches Day in some schools for the day he came. Um, He was really like just getting in his Tesla and riding around all over the place to do this. And then we got more and more people who were excited about it and wanted to give back, but other experts at that same level, like people who've done world-changing things. We have two world-class astrophysicists, one who was the one who who, uh, discovered um, brown dwarfs, you know, like unbelievable. So they're giving back um, and finding it to be exciting. And it's, so what we do is we find out, okay, you have this, you have this expertise, let's put it out there and see if kids are interested. So, um, and we've found kids from pre-K all the way through college who get on with these mentors very regularly, um, to either work individually with them. Like kids have actual access to astronauts, actual real access to these individuals and they want that. And so that's where we are trying to make the world a smaller place by bringing, um, people together who have world-class, world-changing expertise to kids who might never get a chance to meet them, but they actually get to really, truly talk on Zoom with them uh, one-on-one or in groups or on email or um, we can't do it personally yet, but it was in person for a while. Like kids were like climbing all over Bill in a classroom of, you know, first graders. It was hysterical actually. That's so sweet. Yeah. So when you had that conversation with him, the idea was planted and a year, it just kept percolating in your mind. It didn't leave you and you decided to just launch it. I didn't know how to launch it. And what happened was every now and then somebody would say, Hey, I have an idea for you. And there was someone who I approached to, um, to talk with, you know, from LinkedIn. And she happened to say, I'd love to start with you. I want to work in schools. And she didn't stick with us. She was just with us for about a month, but it got the spark going. It was just what we needed. Like I, I didn't know how to do it. And she came in and then she left and I mean, it was all good, Yeah. but then more people joined on that had a different area of expertise. So we just kept adding that. And then that momentum kept growing, growing. So one of the top IP lawyers joined our our board, our founding board. And when that happened, 
it, it certainly exploded because she came on and we were able to become real. Mm-hmm. And then um, the um, chief technology officer and lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, um, a really amazing woman, Jen Snow, came on board. And that's when it really just snowballed. We She called it a snowstorm. Um, she had so many people that she was connected with who then said, well, I want to I want to join on and she's our CTO. And um, we went from 10 to 70 within a couple of months. Wow. And we had to stop it. We couldn't take more because we just didn't have the bandwidth um, to even get them all on the website in a meaningful way. Um, uh, So now we're comfortable. um, And, but within a year, it really took off and it's still growing. Um, it's a so it's really great exciting. extension of the work that you do because you kept yeah. talking about the meaning, how meaningful connection is and how important it is and to give back. And, you know, the Ebenezer Scrooge example that you gave where the light goes off when he gets involved. Um, is that a piece of advice that you would give to someone who's feeling uh, unfulfilled or a little lost or a little, you know, any advice you could give to somebody out there? Twofold advice for that. Yes, look within yourself and appreciate and acknowledge anything that you do. We're so good at saying, I messed that up, or I'm deficient in this way, or I need that. But we're terrible at giving ourselves a pat on the back. And that's one of the most valuable things that we can do is, um, you know, I'll just give you one example. Bill Cheswick, the guy who, you know, um, started all of this with getting kids into the school. He said that when he was at Bell Labs, he had to write an I am great list at the end of every year so that they could see if they were worthy of like keeping their job. And he <laughs> called it the, that's what they just informally called it. But it was a list of all your accomplishments through the year. And there's nothing more valuable than that. We never do that. No. And if Especially people women. can make their own. Exactly. Um, we have an, I am expected to do this list, right, you know, but we don't, we add enough to ourselves too. We never feel like we, yes. Yeah. So if people can do that, it's, um, it's a game changer. And the other thing we can do is point out when we see other people. So if we now have our network of close friends, I could say to you, you're really good at what you do. I can see that you have a real knack for what you're doing. You have compassion and empathy for others you have a real desire to learn about others. Um, and that is something that, you know, you, people don't do. So if we can start to acknowledge those things in other people, it's going to be easier for them to acknowledge it in themselves. Mm. And that's, so it's twofold. One is doing it for yourself and the other is doing it for others. As you see, you know, something about somebody else that is, that they're a rock star in. Love it. And are are there books or things that women who are curious about aging in a way that you talk about? Did you write the book? You said you wrote a book. I'm in the middle of it. I took what happened was with the mentor project taking off, it's sitting down, you know, it's not done. Um, and I'm hoping to get back to it. I don't know of books right now that address this, but I do want to write one on what's called lateral mentorship. Um, that's not just about the mentoring that I just talked about, but the talks about how we mentor side by side Mm -hmm. and women are experts at this. Mm -hmm. We are really good. If you give 
uh, some kind of problem that needs to be solved, give it to a bunch of women Mm -hmm. because they will say, oh, she's good at this. She's good at this. She's good at this. She's good at this. And you get expertise from all over the place, bring it together into a group, problem solved in a day. You know, that's honestly what our, um, our abilities are. And so those principles work in all industries and that I'm going to be writing up, but I do write up about, I do write about lateral mentorship. Um, I have a blog, um, in psychology today and I try to write up, you know, these sorts of things, um, and on aging, but no, we need a book about that. You should write it, Michelle. No, this is your expertise. I, 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 I'm doing my thing. No, this is um, bringing your expertise on. But no, I, I would love to see something like that because I think it's just a different way of thinking of it. Because I, I agree with you, and I love your positive spin. Again, the optimism. I'm the same, and you're seeing the trajectory, and you're seeing positive things. Um, I, I think we still need more. Like we need the book. We need the expert. We need the TED talk from you. You know more saturation of these concepts so that people just, it's just more normal. And you go, oh yeah, I'm aging. It's awesome. Like I'm, I feel good. We don't, we don't have that. We have a lot on image. Um, yeah, that's what I'm don't. saying. And I even confused it. I actually am so yeah. appreciative of what you said, because in a way, I think I was confusing image with aging to some degree and of the things that I was concerned about. Um, mm-hmm. But less so now, because you're right, that's kind that's just, that's education to some degree too, and just self-worth and, you know, growing up, if you will. Um, Can you leave us with your three best tips on aging well, to live with joy and fulfillment? Sure. Um, The three best tips are to acknowledge your own skills. And it's easier said than done. And the second is to acknowledge other people's skills and to express them to them. And the third one is to cultivate meaningful connections. After that, everything falls in place. That's beautiful. That's it. That's really it. it. Yeah, there's no magic to it. Yeah. I hear some women say, though, that as moms, they have a harder time connecting. You know, when you're younger, there's built-in places. And if you're not working anymore, any advice on that? Well, when we're younger, that happens. And that's when, by the time you're say 50, you've sloughed off all of your, you know, most of your superficial friendships. If you're an older mom, kind of like I was, I was an older mom and there are lots of older moms like myself out there. Me too. Um, you, you have to sort of take a couple steps back and expect superficial friendships to be longer than they would have been because you're doing play dates and you know you're you're involved with people that you might not be long term but if you're able to at least get one or two good friends in there where you can carve out time that's what i would say um and d- another thing is to if you do have superficial friends you don't have to say uh, they're out you know oh cut them out now <laughs> um it's really it's um, just acknowledging that you do have to have the meaningful connections in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's everything. It really is at the heart of, of health and longevity and happiness and, and what life is about. So this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your work, Debbie? Where do I direct them? You can direct them to debraheiser.com. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H. H E I S E R.com or the mentor project. And that's mentor 
org. Um, you can find me on all so, uh, social media, LinkedIn. You can find the mentor project on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, pretty much wherever you have your social media. Um, we, yeah, that's where you can find me. Thanks for a very interesting, enlightening and fun conversation. And I appreciate your time and uh, people really should check out the mentor project. I'm really, that's, it's fantastic what you've created. Thank you for your work. I appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you for this pivot that you're doing, bringing um, new information out to everyone. I love it. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you. You're kind. Thanks so much, Debbie. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast right now on your phone and to leave a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you are interested in continuing the conversation about the topic that was discussed in any episode, you can leave a comment over at thegoodlifecoach.com for that particular episode. You can also access all of the show notes. And while you're there, I'd love to invite you to be a part of the community where you will get an email from me once a week with more inspiration and tips to own your life and love yourself. Thanks as always for tuning in. And I'll look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.